life was a tragedy. His daughter was abducted and murdered. He never overcame that. And neither did his wife, and his wife died prematurely. And on her deathbed, Moraine promised her that he would see the investigation through and that he would see justice done for Helen. And he told us that. And of course, at the end of the day, he did just that. Great man, and as important to this investigation as any detective. I was asked to say a few words at his funeral. This was a, a man of immense character. This lovely man. All right. Good evening, Tom. Good evening. How are you doing, Simon? I'm good, thank you. Tom, yep. I want to talk to you about the victims tonight in particular, because I don't know about you, but I always like to spend at least 10 times more time on the victims than I do on the animals that we tend to discuss here as the perpetrators. But in this case, there was something that intrigued me about what you were telling us last time, and that was this double act of Angus Sinclair and Gordon Hamilton, uh, Hamilton being his brother-in-law. Normally, there's a dominant amongst a, a duo like that. Who was the, the leader here? Who was the real uh, driver of this rampage that these two went on? Well, there's no question it was Angus Sinclair. First of all, we know from the murder of Mary Gallagher that Angus Sinclair acted alone, so he didn't always act in a pair. We're not sure about how many crimes uh, Gordon Hamilton was involved in, but what we can say is we only found traces of him at the world's end seat. Gordon Hamilton was a weak individual. He was a heavy drinker. He was a bit of a waster, to be honest. And and that's not me saying that. That was his family's view of him. And so there's no question that Sinclair was the leader and the ringmaster in all of these crimes, as he was in all his other criminal activities as well. He was very much a leader. He was always sober, wasn't he, and calculating. Sinclair didn't drink at all and was always waiting for the opportunity, whether it be a crime, a robbery, a theft, or some exploitation of somebody, you get the impression with Angus Sinclair that he was always lying in wait. Tom, something that's very topical and well-known, all of our listeners will be aware of profiling, and we're no strangers to it ourselves. Angus Sinclair would be difficult to fit into a profile, wouldn't he, because of the way he picked his victims differently. He seemed to go through phases in his activity and his criminal activity with regards to the victims that he chose. Yeah, it's interesting. Angus Sinclair is a, a, a multi-commodity criminal. He is a robber, he is a thief, he is a pornographer, he's a very good painter and decorator, and he's a predatory murderer. And if you look at his victims in terms of his sexual offending, he starts with a wee girl, Catherine Rehill. He then goes to teenagers and older women before coming back to children again at the end of his offending pattern. So you see this perfect bell curve of offending. And looking at the timings of these crimes, it's very clear that his last adult victim was Agnes Cooney. Now, Agnes Cooney was a, a big girl. She was well set up. She was muscular. She was very able. Although she was only 20, I think she was very able. And from her injuries, it's clear that she put up a fight. And we think that frightened Angus Sinclair. He almost didn't get away with that one. And so he went back to safer territory. 
He disposed of his murder vehicle, the Toyota camper van, which we'll talk about as being an absolute key to these crimes. He got rid of that and he was back on foot when he was attacking the wee girls in Glasgow, for which he was arrested and got life in prison. Okay, so the victims themselves, Tom, the girls that were murdered by Sinclair predominantly, we've now got a few years leading up to the trial, the first trial. There was no rush because he was in custody. He was out of harm's way at that particular point in time. Do you have any information about how he functioned within the prison? He adapted perfectly to the prison environment. And in fact, when we phoned up the governor of one of the prisons he was in to notify him confidentially that we'd be coming to take him away, his response was, oh, no, not Gus. Gus runs my kitchens. Gus is a great guy. Oh. I don't know, what am I going to do? He's worried. He's worth two more prison staff. Gus, oh, great fellow. Organised, driven, energetic, a man who got the job done. Unfortunately, yeah, that was also true of his offending. Yeah, I think we mentioned it in our last episode that he obviously had a charm about him, that he was able to get into the circumstances that he got himself into and to some degree engender trust from his victims in the first instance. Yeah, all his victims had a drink, but were not drunk. And that was the key thing about it. It was always the weekend, usually on Saturday night. All his victims had been out on the town, had a couple of drinks, just maybe enough to take the edge off their weariness. And he was very plausible. And he was very clean, and he was very respectful, and he wasn't drunk. So to these girls who were used to being assailed by young men who were drunk then, the Zanga Sinclair looked a very nice, safe prospect. But what I forgot to say, he took the role in prison latterly of a sort of father confessor. So young prisoners would come to him to talk about their problems. Sinclair would give them sound advice and pretty brutal advice too. He would tell them to shape up and get themselves organised. And so he was very much, as I say, a father figure, uh, father confessor, as it were, Within the prison system, he was firmly ensconced in Peterhead Prison when we got a hold of him in 2004. And one of the things he dreaded was being moved out of Peterhead because he had his regime and he had his lifestyle there, which was very bearable. And he had status within the system as this sort of elder statesman kind of figure. Can I ask you a question, Tom, that's probably in the minds of all our listeners? Did he have any remorse? None whatsoever. He was, while he was not diagnosed, although he was examined, he was not diagnosed with sociopathic tendencies or as a sociopath. There's no question he had sociopathic tendencies. These girls were just objects to be used and disposed of. He had absolutely no empathy whatsoever. Never expressed it, never gave any indication, nothing. Not a hint. It's something that we'll return to, no doubt, across many episodes, is that, that trademark, if you like, of the, the psychopath or sociopath, that uh, they don't see the world through the same lens as most of us do, where we understand other people's feelings and other people's vulnerabilities. Tom, if we could move on from him then, if we could move on to the victim's families, because in any inquiry, a big part of that inquiry is the liaison that we have with the victims and their families. How did that operate within the confines of the World's End murder? Well, we were very, very fortunate in that Helen Scott's dad was a man called Moraine Scott. Moraine Scott 
He's actually very well known within amateur football circles. He was a very senior administrator for many years of amateur football in Scotland. And clearly, he was a collegiate person. He was a very good team player. And right from the start, he took the role of the sort of contact person for both his own family and for Christine's family. Christine's mum wasn't able to do that. And so Maureen Scott was the main point of contact. And over the years, he was a tower of strength and a huge assistant to the police service. As you know, Simon, as these things, as the inquiries go on and you get no results, the members of the press will start to try, or some members of the press will start to try and pick off the families. Do you think the police should have done this? Try and put a wedge in to create a story about the murders. Maureen Scott was outstanding. Never allowed that to happen at all. His position was always, listen, the police and I are working on this together. These boys are doing a great job. We'll get there. Very positive. You could, you, could almost, you could almost see him in the dressing room of a football team, giving a half-time talk, saying, listen, boys, things have not worked out. He was a, a lovely man and a, and a great man. And we kept in touch with him all the time. And sometimes sometimes we, had, we thought we had a breakthrough. He didn't come off. It was, so we'd been to see him and said, look, we don't want you to read this in the papers. We, we made sure that Maureen Scott, and Christine's family read nothing in the papers before we had told them. That was the golden rule. Yeah. And time and time again, we thought we had something happening. We thought there was a breakthrough. We'd say to them, look, this looks hopeful. Like the first discovery of DNA in the 90s, we went to see him and said, Marine, we've knocked it off here. We're going to get him. Didn't work out. And his attitude was, never mind, boys. Let's keep going. Marine's life was a tragedy. His daughter was abducted and murdered. He never overcame that. And neither did his wife, and his wife died prematurely. And on her deathbed, Moraine promised her that he would see the investigation through and that he would see justice done for Helen. And he told us that. And of course, at the end of the day, he did just that. Great man, and as important to this investigation as any detective. That's fascinating, Tom. And can I suggest a very clever man as well, and a lesson to us all that shouting and bawling and demanding things and and falling out with people very often has the opposite effect of the results that you're looking for. And what he did was go along with the inquiry, nurture the inquiry, make sure that the officers knew that he was on their side and motivated the inquiry to a great degree. And that was a a real tribute to his daughter, I would suggest. He absolutely did. And, And you know something I've often thought? We were observers. During our police service, we were usually observers of other people's grief and angst. But I've often thought, if that catastrophe had befallen me, I'd have been happy to have done half as well as Maureen Scott. I said that at his funeral. I was asked to say a few words at his funeral, and I was happy to say just that, that this was a a man of immense character, a lovely man. And during the course of that, the other, the truth of Angus Robertson Sinclair was coming to light and he got to see satisfaction as far as that was concerned, as far as Sinclair was concerned. After many, after many twists and turns, after many disappointments, after many near things, eventually, yes, it did, before the end of his life. And, and I know that all of us 
who had ever been involved in the investigation felt particularly pleased, pleased is not the word, relieved, relieved that he had seen justice done for his daughter. So from 2004, Tom, you're the officer in charge of Operation Trinity, which is tasked yep. with looking into the facts and circumstances, the, the antecedents, the history, the life of Angus Sinclair, and we now know his cohort. This is all leading up, as everything we do in the police leads up to, it's leading up to presenting this case in a court of law. So what were the nuances of that inquiry? How big a team did you have? Where did you work from? And what were your targets and objectives during the course of that? We had two teams, Lothian and Borders and Strathclyde. And we had an incident room at Livingston in Lothian and Borders. And we had an incident room in Glasgow as well. And we had two detective superintendents leading the two sides of the investigation. Two very experienced men, Ian Thomas in Lothian and Borders, Eddie McCusker in Strathclyde. Both very capable, very experienced guys. And we had some really bright young people too. We had Alan Jones in, in Lothian and Borders who really played a tremendous role in this investigation. And in Strathclyde, we had Colin Field, who was a very young man at that time, but up and coming and a very clearly a very bright and capable officer. So we had a very good team. We had an advisory board, including senior investigating officers from down south. We had the National Crime Faculty on board advising us. We had people advising us in interviews and all the rest of it. It was a very formidable team and it was a privilege. I felt it was a privilege for me to be leading that, to be honest with you. But there was a problem, of course, and that was the fact that we had very strong forensic evidence now, thanks to Lester Nebber, thanks to the, the forensic scientists at Lothian Borders. We had really good forensic evidence to tie Gordon Hamilton and Angus Sinclair to the scene of the murder of Helen Scott. We had this coat, the precious coat that we've been talking about during this broadcast. But in the Strathclyde side, they were very hampered by the fact that the forensic evidence had been lost. We spoke about yeah. that. They were always under the gun. And I have to say they did a remarkable job of trying to make a lot out of a little, of trying to weave together a circumstantial case which would link Angus Sinclair with these murders. Now, let's be clear about what murders we're talking about. We're talking about Anna Kenny. We're talking about Hilda Macaulay. We're talking about Agnes Cooney. And we're talking about the World's End murders. The problem was there was one other murder that came into the ambit which caused us problems. And that was the murder of a young woman called Frances Barker, who was killed in June 1977. She lived in the Mary Hill Road, not very far from where Sinclair was staying at that time. Her body was recovered in Glenboig in Lanarkshire, in an area where we knew uh, Sinclair had frequented before. And so all of these murders were identical, not similar, not very similar, but identical in terms of the victims, in terms of how they'd been killed, in terms of the locations where they'd been left. They all fitted a very tight pattern. And what the Strathclyde side of the investigation did, which was a great piece of work, really, they did a tremendous job in constructing the first Scottish homicide database. Now, what struck us all, how come this hadn't been done before? But it hadn't been done before. And what they did was they looked at 
all the murders of women from 1960 to 2004, 40 years. And alarmingly, when you read through them, it was horrifying. Over 2,000 Scottish women had been murdered during that time. 2,000. Yeah. It was absolutely horrific when you read it. But the point of doing that all was to show that this group of murders were uh, all identical. The problem we had with Francis Barker was that a man had been convicted for that murder, a man called Thomas Ross Young. And he was in prison serving a life sentence for that murder and for a series of rapes and attacks on prostitutes. So he was a bad guy anyway. This caused us a big problem because we ask ourselves, okay, there's three options here, isn't there? There's the option that Thomas Ross Young offended along with Angus Sinclair. Was he another mate that Angus Sinclair had? There was no evidence that Young had ever met or had offended or had anything to do with Thomas Ross Young. Young was a lorry driver who was also believed to be responsible for another murder of a, of a wee girl called Pat McAdam in Dumfries and Galloway in 1967. Thomas Ross Young was a, a horrible individual serving life imprisonment, but there was no connection between him and Sinclair. So you've got to say, okay, so if he didn't offend with Sinclair, perhaps Thomas Ross Young was not guilty of the murder of Francis Barker, and perhaps there had been a miscarriage of justice. Yeah, there was a lot of evidence to convict Thomas Ross Young, in fairness, and a lot of physical evidence. So that was difficult. Third option is that our pattern wasn't tight enough, and that this exceptional case we were trying to present about these murders being absolutely exceptional and identical within 2,000 murders over 40 years was actually, in fact, not 100% tight. Either way you looked at it, it was bad news. Given the media coverage of the Sinclair murders, I'm talking Anna Kenny, Angus Cooney, etc., could he have been a copycat? He was the first in the series. Francis Barker was the first one in June 77. Okay. The murders basically covered the second half of 1977 and the first few months of 78. And Francis Barker was the first. And of course, the World's End murders were in October. So that wasn't a possibility. Okay, so we had a very strong forensic case for the World's End murders. And we had circumstantial evidence around about the other cases in Glasgow with Sinclair knowing all the locations, having visited the location, including Anna Kenny's deposition site that you were at as a very young constable. He'd been up there fishing. And the key to this time he had was the fact in the middle of 1977, with the proceeds of crime, he had bought a brand new Toyota Hilux camper van. And this was his murder vehicle. This was his abduction vehicle. And sometimes when you're looking at these patterns, you tend to go on down the road of all sort of psychological stuff. Sometimes it's something very physical. He had the ability to do it. And he had the ability. He would go away at weekends, disappear from sight, disappear from the view of his family, fishing allegedly or away, allegedly working in this camper van. And this was the perfect vehicle in which to abduct young women, in which to secure them, 
and in which the murder did. We had all this stuff and we constructed what I thought was a very good case. And if you can imagine a tent with the central pole of the tent being the strong forensic evidence from the world's end. So we had this very strong central column of evidence, the forensic evidence from the world's end. And then we had a whole lot of surrounding evidence, like the guy ropes of the tent, which support the pole and the pole supports them. And that was the Glasgow evidence. That was all the circumstantial evidence on the Glasgow cases. But all in all, we thought that it hung together. And we submitted it to the Crown, two thousand and end of 2004, 2005. And uh, yeah. we got unlucky. We'd had a very good procurator fiscal who'd been working with us and we'd had a very good advocate deputy. But just as the case was submitted, these personnel changed. The fiscal got promoted and the advocate deputy actually was made, a, was made a judge. And so we got new people coming in who did not know any of the background to this and were just getting the reports cold. Yeah. Uh, and so we were, we were worried about that. We were concerned about that. And they came back to us and said, look, obviously there's evidence in the World Z case but we don't think there's sufficient in the Glasgow cases, and we're worried that the Glasgow cases might weaken the world's end case. So, as you know, once you hand a report over to the Crown, it's up to them. Yeah. It's not up to you. You can influence, and you can suggest, and you can hector, and you can phone them up, yeah. but at the end of the day, they will take their decisions based on what they think is the public interest and what they think is the best interest of the case. And it always amuses me. You see in the newspapers, people saying, oh, the procurator fiscals and the police work hand in glove and they're all pals together. Well, I can tell you, that's never been my experience. <laughs> I wish sometimes it had been that way, but it wasn't. So it was a huge disappointment to the Glasgow team, who, as I say, had done a power of work. They really had. People like Colin Field really had pulled out all the stops and done everything they possibly could. But no amount of new science and no amount of investigative zeal and ability will compensate if a bad mistake's made back down the road a piece. And the loss of the forensic evidence in the Kenny Macaulay and Cooney case was a disaster from which we could not recover. So anyway, we swallowed that with great difficulty and the trial date was set for 2007 for the world's end. But as we got closer, we started to get worried about that too because it was very clear that the advocate deputy who had been appointed was taking a view that this was a very simple case. There was no need to worry about all the supporting evidence for the world's end I'm talking about now. No need to worry about all of that. No need to worry about introducing stuff about knots and about how people tied knots and all of this stuff. Nothing like that at all. They would just go in DNA. So in essence, the, the summary of the case that the prosecution were putting in 2007 was, here we have a murdered girl and here we have a DNA sample of semen and this sample belongs to this man here, the accused. That's so it. he must have murdered her. Dead simple. Dead simple. That's it. Black and white. That's it. Of course, we thought, wait a minute. 
There's an obvious flaw in this. And we saw it straight away, and we spoke to him about it. We said, listen, don't you realise, although this guy has said nothing in during hours and hours and hours and hours of interviews, that when he appears in the court, he was going to say, well, yes, maybe I did meet her and we had consensual sex. Now, that's an obscenity. Helen was just a, a, a lassie uh, who had no sexual experience at all to suggest she'd have gone on a one-night stand with a man who had sex with her and left her and somebody along came along and murdered her was ridiculous. But, of course, it blew a hole in that very slender case of the prosecutions because the problem was that the prosecution case in 2007 was just the single poll which was brittle and which was susceptible to these kind of challenges. And anyway, the advocate deputy wouldn't have any of it. It wasn't to be reasoned with. He knew best. And as you know, there's nothing you can do about that. The advocate deputy is the person to take the case. We were unfortunate with the judge as well, in that the judge was not a judge who was very experienced in criminal matters. He was an expert in other areas of the law. And so it was one of the most horrific two or three days in my life when we saw this case and you could, it was like watching a train crash in slow motion. There was absolutely nothing you could do about it, but you could see exactly what was going to happen. Yeah. And so prosecution said, this is my case, dead girl, DNA, this is the man's DNA. And the defence got up and said, well, that could well be, my lord, because my client says that he probably met this girl and had consensual sex with her and that somebody else must have killed her. And you've got no evidence to suggest, or there is no evidence, to actually tie the murder to him. And of course, there was evidence, but it hadn't been led. And so the judge said there was, there was no case to answer. And, and I remember I was sitting in the court at the time, you know, stunned. And the jury were there. And I'm a great jury watcher. I'm a, great, I'm a great belief in juries. The jury were there. And there was two women, older women, sitting in the front of the jury members. And they were looking at Angus Sinclair. And you could just see, you could see, you could see in their eyes, they're thinking, you know, they were most, most upset about that. You, you could just see that they did not believe or wonder that. The uh, only saving grace being, of course, that he's still in custody and he's not going anywhere. They couldn't do any more harm after that, Tom. That's true, Simon. That's true. But can I tell you, it was a very, very small compensation. Yeah, I can understand that, Tom. You've touched on so many aspects of police work there. Now, I need to recap just a wee bit because people listening to this, uh, as you say, probably think that the police service and the procurator fiscal service, the Crown, work very much hand in hand, hand in glove, if you like. And it's very much not the case in my experience as well. So much so that I always, I worked in the, in the drugs field for many years and in surveillance. And whenever we put a case together, which may have taken six months, I don't mean work on it every day for six months, but it may have been pieced together over an operation that spanned six months or a year or a couple of years in some cases before you had all the spokes together to make it stick together and then you brought it to a head with interviews or, or seizures or whatever it might be on a big scale. But in order for a fiscal or, or for the Crown to understand all those nuances, we never ever sent a case in. We always made an appointment and somebody was nominated. I did it very often with drugs cases, especially one where I had put the wrong door in, but I'll come to that another day perhaps. 
and had no warrant for the house that we were in. And we'd made a major seizure of firearms and, and drugs. And we got away with it because I went and saw the fiscal and explained that I, this had been done in good faith. And when it went to the court, the court accepted that it had been done in good faith and that it would have been remiss of me not to do it. So the point I'm making is that we very often had to make sure that the Crown and the, the fiscal service got engaged with it because they're dealing with such a volume of work in the fiscal service. And I know that we've got a guest coming on in the not-too-distant future who was an advocate who worked for the Crown. So we can maybe discuss that with him as well. But, but those relationships were so important, especially with major crime like you had there. An unsolved murder, which at that point was almost 30 years, in fact, it was 30 years old in 2007, after yeah. the World's End murders in 1977. Probably the fiscal had been at primary school or early secondary school when those murders had been committed, which kind of puts it into perspective a bit as well. We had a very good relationship with the fiscal. As you say, we had a fiscal who was advising us in the investigation, and we had an advocate deputy who were keeping appraised. But as I said, there was personnel changes, and so we had new people that came in. And while we did all that you're talking about there, there wasn't the same degree of ownership or commitment from the new people that came yeah. in than there had been from the old people. And that, that's just a fact. So these were a, it was a, a culmination of circumstances. Anyway, Sinclair was discharged and there was an absolute uproar because by this time, most of the press were aware of the evidence. I mean, miscarriages of justice work two ways. It's not always the accused who is wrongly convicted. Sometimes it's the accused who gets away with it. And there was a very strong feeling that being a miscarriage of justice. And really, now step forward, two immensely powerful characters in this whole story. One of them was Frank Mulholland, who was the Solicitor General, and the other was Kenny McCaskill, who was the Justice Secretary in the Scottish government. And both these men got it. Both these men understood exactly what the issues were. And there was huge public concern over this miscarriage of justice. And, uh, you know, Frank Mulholland had a meeting with Maureen Scott, Helen's dad, and promised Maureen that he would do everything he could to set it right. And he did. Later, Frank Mulholland became Lord Advocate, and it was incredibly powerful. Superb, Tom. I think at that point, because it's quite a shock to get us to 2007 and discover that Sinclair's not going to answer for these crimes as it stands. But I think we'll leave it there because that subject is worthy of a, an episode on its own of how we've got all this investment, 30 years investment, the family, even the murders in Glasgow that we can't quite get to court at this point. We've got so much invested in this and, and the next few years are critical to bring Angus Roberts and Sinclair to the justice that he obviously deserved. So we'll leave it there just now and we'll speak again soon. I look forward to it, Tom. Thanks very much, Simon. Next time on Crime Time Inc. At the end of the day, when you look at cases like this, what I'm always struck with is the total waste. There were two young girls that were 17 years old that were at the very start of their lives. They'd have been 60 years old now. And there'd have been mothers, grandmothers, who knows what they might have contributed in nursing or teaching, who knows? All of that just snuffed out 
in minutes of just wickedness. By any objective standard, he has got to be the most dangerous man that's walked the face of Scotland in the 20th century. That we know about. That we know about. Yes. <laughs> 